Welcome everyone. I'm your host, Katrine Erickson, the Executive Director of the Rungslin Research Program, a nonprofit focused on preventing cancer in patients with a rare inherited blood cancer predisposition called Runx1 familial platelet disorder. I'm also an inaugural member of the Milken Institute Faster Cures Leaders Link Program. And in this podcast series, I will share interviews with leaders in the healthcare space who have made significant advances in the diseases they work on through their roles in venture philanthropy, pharma, biotech, academia, venture capital, regulatory agencies, and more. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Dr. Louise Perkins, a brilliant, thoughtful, expert leader in the healthcare landscape, is my guest today. She is a biochemist by training who spent more than 15 years as a cancer research group leader at both Sharing Plow Research Institute and Bayer Pharmaceuticals. She then transitioned to the nonprofit medical research sector as the chief scientific officer of the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation where she led major research funding initiatives that, among many other major advances, resulted in the first ever comprehensive whole genome sequencing analysis of multiple myeloma patients. Dr. Perkins left the MMRF after about six years and assumed the role of Chief Scientific Officer at the Melanoma Research Alliance in 2013. During her tenure, Melanoma patients experienced the FDA approval of the first combination targeted therapies and multiple immuno-oncology treatments for their disease. Today, she is the board president of the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Louise, it's great to be sitting down with you. I really look forward to discussing your incredible career and understanding some of the ingredients to your many successes. Well, thanks, Katrine. It's really an honor to be here, and I am excited to have this conversation with you. Wonderful. I thought we could start with how you ended up in the sciences in the first place and what motivated you to transition from your postdoctoral training straight into industry. Well, believe it or not, I'm one of those people who always wanted to be a scientist. I kind of always knew that uh, growing up as a kid was mixing things up in the kitchen and making them bubble. And I grew up during the space race and uh, thought I wanted to be an astronaut. So, yeah, it was kind of always in my DNA, I suspect. When I got to college, I experimented with a number of different majors at UNC Chapel Hill, all touching on the sciences and wound up coming back to zoology, which was a department that allowed me to learn about molecular biology, which was a new thing at that time. And I just decided at that moment that I would do something that I loved and deal with the consequences, which I expected would be long-term unemployment at the time. But I was able to get into the Department of Biological Chemistry for graduate school at the University of Michigan and uh, thought I would actually be studying oncogenic viruses there. But life throws you twists and turns. And I actually found myself studying steroidogenesis. And I did that studying P450 enzymes involved in testosterone biosynthesis. And after my graduate work completed, got back to the oncology and worked at Princeton in a MIC oncogene lab. Doing all of that work as a graduate student and as a postdoc it really just solidified for me that I didn't want to be involved in the business of academic research. And so I was one of those people who knew that going to industry was going to be a good thing for me, at least I thought it was, but there were not a lot of role models, honestly, for me at the time. And I think my, I know my thesis advisor thought I'd just fallen off the face of the earth, but I got a job offer from Shearing Plow and it just was a fit for me, and it was a fit because being able to do something dealing with human biology but not actually working with people specifically because it wasn't my training, and to do something practical, it just suits me, and um, that's been my whole career. You mentioned the academic business. What did you mean by that exactly? Well, of course, there's the endless grant writing and that didn't appeal to me. It doesn't appeal to me. There was what I could see and just glimpses under the hood of academic politics. It just, again, that part didn't appeal to me. 
what I found working in industry, which I had a little bit of a of insight into because my husband worked as a chemist in the industry, is that it was an organization with structure and human resources and training. And so there were opportunities to do things where you could be productive, but not have to deal with the kinds of things that I observed in my career. Yeah, I, I think at least from my experience initially in academia, there's certainly a much greater sense of team when you compare industry or experiences in industry versus academia. In academia, you have your lab and your collaborators, but it's not as broad spanning as it feels once you're in a large company. Yeah, I would say that's true. And, and I, I, that also, as a, as a funder of uh, research in the nonprofit business, funding team science, it, it can be a challenge because you're funding teams of people who were selected for and largely trained to be the leaders of their own groups, but not necessarily working on a big project with others. Some of them do, no doubt, and some of them do it very, very well. But a lot of people are really what in the industry we would call individual contributors, which is great. The world needs individual contributors. It's just not being a team member isn't what they're selected for. Absolutely. So you move into industry. What did you learn during that part of your professional life? How did those learnings help propel you? And how were you able to transfer those skill sets as you look to your next career move into the medical research nonprofit world? One of the things that I learned in the initial stage of my professional career was that working for good leaders is a great way to learn about being a good leader if you're open to those lessons. And there were several gentlemen for whom I worked who really were just that. They championed their staff, they protected their staff, and they had us work on meaningful and useful things. So those were important. I mean, just, you know, you, you become in many ways who you have seen. So those were really uh, valuable lessons for me. And when I went to my second industry job at Bayer, I actually went to w continue to work for one of those people. And it was similar but different because the environment at Bayer was a culture built around uh, a different kind of mindset, very project-oriented, very quantitative, goal-driven mindset. But between those two experiences, it was amazing to be able to grasp moving projects forward and making difficult decisions, but also working collectively towards quantitative objectives, where even, you know, the people who were not on the front lines of leadership, they had a role to play. They knew how they were going to be valued, and it all worked. It was good stuff. So you learned about formulating these quantitative objectives, as you say, and you learned about what it takes to be a good leader. And you mentioned this concept of championing your staff. Let's get into how those experiences set you up for your experience at the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, which I believe was your next step, correct? It was. When I left Bear, I left Bear with all 300 plus people and the research staff because of a merger between uh, Bear and Sharing AG, a different sharing. And the West Haven Research Facility was closed down, so we were all looking for jobs. And this position kind of kept coming up as, at the time, Director of Research at the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, but I had done no work whatsoever with uh, a research foundation. I just had no idea what that position could possibly be. After a while, I did interview for that role. And when I got there and met the founder and leader of the organization, Kathy Giusti, I found that it was not that different from what I was accustomed to, where there were quantitative objectives and there were systems in place to support you being successful. There were things that had been ongoing, like grant making, that they were quite accomplished at. Uh, there was a vision for where to go in a few years, and the hard part was putting in place the programming to get there. So all of that training that I had had, as well as all of the management training that had frankly been invested in me to make me a better person, some of which stuck, was really incredibly valuable 
to be successful in that role on behalf of the foundation and working with all of the diverse individuals that you, you work with in any job. So ultimately, what drew you in? It sounds like you were surprised by the sophistication that the MMRF had in place in terms of achieving their vision and the systems they had in place. But was there something else about the MMRF or the nonprofit sector that enticed you, that drew you in? I think if I had had more exposure to the nonprofit world, I would have known off the bat that this was not an opportunity to be missed because the MMRF has an outstanding reputation, a well-deserved outstanding reputation among nonprofits. But I didn't know any of that. When I got there and when I interviewed Partly what drew me in was the strength of personality that Kathy had, the clear vision that she had for the field, and being able to understand from the way she described the role and the opportunities to me how my skill sets not only would fit in, but would help to change the arc of things for the better for multiple myeloma patients. And coming from Uh, a drug discovery environment where you're so far removed from patients, to be able to have just one step closer to making someone's life really better, that was, uh, all of that tied together made it appealing. I fully concur that that was something for me as well as I thought about leaving academia and then moving to industry and then ultimately moving into the nonprofit sector. It's the opportunity to interact directly with patients and to actually tangibly feel how the work that you're doing is directly impacting a patient population. It's really meaningful. And not something you really get when you're working on the discovery side in a big company. You know, I'll say that uh, while I was at Bayer, my sister was diagnosed with colon cancer. And as her payback to researchers in general, because Bayer had no products in this area, um, she came and played her cello for the group which was amazing. Um, And I don't say that just because she was my sister, but, you know, it's for us as researchers to have a patient express their thanks. That's, that's good stuff. And so I think maybe where I was in my life, maybe influenced by that experience of her illness, I was more receptive to the position, but I have to say, I don't look back at all. I miss the resources of industry, but I think the opportunity to change lives in nonprofits is enormous and amazing. I'd like to spend some time talking about your role as chief scientific officer there. I know you mentioned you started as director of research, but I know that as chief scientific officer, you ended up playing a significant role in MMRF's venture philanthropy program. Can we start with how you characterize venture philanthropy and then we can dig into the program specifically? For sure. Yeah. I mean, shortly after I came to the MMRF, I was promoted to CSO, and um, but you know, the job was the job, more or less, the whole time. The um, venture philanthropy at the time has really been the way I define venture philanthropy. That is, it is making research investments from a philanthropic organization with the idea of those investments going to an industry partner in some way to advance the cause for your your disease and that it is managed in a business-like way. Some people um, interpret venture philanthropy as being any smartly managed research investment, which could be to academic groups too. I usually exclude the academic groups unless it's really like a product-driven Uh, investment. More recently, I would say venture philanthropy has coalesced around an idea of investing not in projects per se, but in companies um, with an expectation that they do well and that there's a return on investment um, from the company side and that that is in some way connected to your disease. So where I draw the bright lines around venture philanthropy are philanthropic investment, towards an industry program or organization managed to the benefit of your group of interest. Fair enough. That makes sense. I asked the question because I think it's important as we now dig into the MMRF programs 
that people recognize that there are different ways to characterize venture philanthropy. And so I wanted to be crystal clear about how you characterize it. And then that will, of course, shed light into what motivated the way in which MMRF pursued those kinds of programs. Yeah, so I think um, when I got there, there was um, a program that had made one investment um, at the time. And then, you know, just looking back over the entirety of that program while I was there, I think it was just under $12 million that was invested in what we called biotech investment awards. For me, building on the grant making experience of, to academic institutions, yet factoring in my own experience from the industry side, where I was involved in evaluating external opportunities for potential investment, and also evaluating our internal programs to see if they were worth further investment based on their scientific merits. I tried to fold all of that into how we ran our biotech investment award program. So in broad terms, it was a request for application program that had industry folks submitting a proposal around a specific agent they provided a multi-year outline with quantitative milestones where we could measure progress and those milestones were tied to payments. And uh, it was usually a fairly well-confined kind of project like that. The programs that tended to do better were ones where they did have a collaborator who was a known quantity, a known expert in the field. And while that starts to sound just like any old academic grant, it was different because it also had more of a subjective evaluation component around, does this actually look like a good target or a good molecule? Is this company reasonably well-funded? Is there a good amount of risk, which could be a lot or a little, depending on the mix of our portfolio? And do we feel like the folks involved in this are really going to make it happen? So that was kind of how we would look at the applications that came in. So how did you decide on the budget for this program? Did you have some sort of max limitation on what you were willing to fund? Or did you ask the applicants to design a proposal and then present a budget that would support that proposal? The programs usually would say when in the announcement for the RFA that we are willing to award $500,000 a year for up to three years. I think that was generally how the RFA was written. And so that defined the outward bounds of the scope of funding. We, of course, had to have an idea ourselves for our own budget planning purposes. Okay, how many of these do we think we're going to award? And how does it factor into our overall academic budget? Because it obviously takes away from the academic research that you can support. So typically, the amount of funding that we would give to the BIA program, Biotech Investment Award program, it amounted to around a quarter, 20% to a quarter of the overall research funding that was um, being spent outwardly at the MMRF. The other thing that comes to mind on this particular point is that in certainly more than one case, we would find ourselves with an extra or maybe two extra programs that we wanted to fund. And so then we would have to go back to the board of directors and leadership and say, we think these are worth the investment. Can we scare up the resources to fund these? So it sounds like it was successful right off the bat in terms of actually engaging companies and having them apply for this program. Or did you have to go out and drum up interest in your program? Well, we always drummed up interest. I'm not sure. There were a couple of situations where people came to us, where companies came to us. But we often, we routinely, I should say, met with people at uh, the bio meeting, at ASCO, at AACR, at the, um, what I was called the triple meeting, the AACR and CIEORTC meeting that takes place in the fall, the mm -hmm. cancer ther molecular therapeutics meeting. We would meet with companies, large and small, at those events, hear about you know new molecules that look promising or new approaches that look promising, and sort of recruit companies to consider applying for the Biotech Investment Award. I mean, it wasn't really for the faint of heart because as much as they were going to get the funding, it's not a huge amount of money. And they were going to have to 
commit to providing some kind of payback to the MMRF that was capped if there was money made on their on the entity that we funded. So it was the sort of thing that did usually require a board decision on their part. On the other hand, what I heard more than once was that the money was nice, but the, quote, good housekeeping seal of approval that a nonprofit with its precious resources through an expert review panel had selected their program for funding, that they could turn that into other funding. And that was the more important thing for them. What do you mean by that exactly? How could they turn that into additional funding? Well, I was never privy to these conversations, but I can imagine the scenario in which you know, you're the CEO of a company that's received an award from the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation. You applied for this award. It was reviewed by experts in the field, and it was prioritized for funding by this leading nonprofit. You go to your investors to say, look, it's not just us telling you that this is a good thing. We have these outside experts who are, are viewed as leaders in the field who say this is a good investment, and they've put their own skin in the game. Surely you will put some more funds towards this program as well, as investors always do through the mechanisms that they always do. So that's how I have understood that the real value in, in the program played itself out. In addition, there's one other tangible value, but not something we ever promised, it was that if the agent continued to do well, look promising, and if the experts thought it was going to be worth pursuing in clinical studies, then it could be studied under the auspices of the Multiple Myeloma Research Consortium, which was a clinical consortium truly of leading academic centers in the multiple myeloma space. So they kind of had a foot in the door on a possible clinical trial with these experts and they didn't have to build the relationships de novo. That kind of came with the package. Right. So there's really aligned incentives for both parties. Or Definitely. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about the review process. You mentioned it being considered peer-reviewed and highly regarded. Who are the reviewers for these industry applications? So this was a challenge for us initially, and we, we did refine it over time. I mean, initially, it was uh, really kind of your typical leading academic expert, the way we would do any kind of review. And we um, had them under confidentiality so that they were certain to not share industry secrets beyond the review or with us. But as we went on, we learned that we needed the academic expert review to see if this science held together from the expert side, right? So those are your stakeholders, on the myeloma side. But for us, myself and, and my right-hand person, who was also at Bayer with me, Dr. Joan Levy, for the two of us, we felt like we needed another set of eyes who wasn't internal to the MMRF, but whose opinion we valued. And so we enlisted an, a guy by the name of Christopher Unsworth, Dr. Christopher Unsworth, who we also had worked with at Bayer, whose instincts in this area we just trusted. And so the three of us would evaluate what we always called in the industry of things like drugability and doability. And, you know, does this actually seem like something that you want to take a risk on or not? So there was that kind of scientific business review plus the academic review. And then there was also a review by someone who was used to looking at finances and getting a sense of whether companies we're going to be around for a couple, three years, and that was sometimes our CFO, so that we had more of a broad-based review of, is this a reasonable investment to make? Makes a lot of sense. It's a very mixed group of reviewers, all with important perspectives from their specific expertise. So tell me, during your time there, how many biotech investment awards did you actually fund? And are there some successes that stand out to you in your memory? It was around a dozen. And that was from 2007 to when I left in 2012. And overall, um, because not all of them were, were large awards, but overall the, the amount of money is on the order of $12 million total. The successes that I point to, well, I, I have to say the biggest success I point to 
was the drug that was approved for multiple myeloma after we funded it, uh, Selinexor from Cariofarm. And I really vividly remember, even before it, you know, long before the approval, I remember sitting down at an ASCO meeting with one of the company co-founders, Sharon Sasham, who just had rafts of data and good data on the agent that they were pursuing and, and how it, you know, what it did. I have to say, if I had held strongly to my, you must understand the mechanism of action of this molecule, I didn't fully get the mechanism of action of the drug. But the evidence was very compelling. And when working with with her and with the um, company uh, co-founder, Michael Kaufman, they just were compelling from the standpoint of, we are really going to try to make this work. We are really going to try to make this work in multiple myeloma. And sure enough, they did. I think, you know, if I had it to do all over again, I would try to bottle the analysis of, are these people really committed to myeloma or are they just saying anything to get the award? Because I I think that's a really, that's a tough thing to gauge. And of course, business decisions do happen. But in this case, it worked to the advantage of that agent and to multiple myeloma patients. So Louise, what you're saying is that it it was the people, not necessarily the compelling data You mentioned there were still even question marks about how this particular agent even worked. But having individuals leading that company demonstrate to you that they were committed and really interested in pushing this forward, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. That sort of pushed you over the edge and you thought, this is something we need to invest in. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, but uh, to be fair, th- I was probably the only person who didn't understand the mechanism of action. I think they did, <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> and, um, and at that stage, this was all preclinical, so it hadn't gone into human yet. Yeah, all preclinical. And, and, but honestly, when you, at least what I saw working in, in industry is when you're producing data and when you're reviewing program packages for in further investment by the organization, you get a sense of what good data looks like. And this was good data. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not to say it's always going to lead to a drug, but it was a very robust collection of information. And so how did that drug ultimately impact myeloma patients? It received an accelerated approval not that long ago and is, is on the market. I must say, I don't know how it has fared since then. Certainly when I left the MMRF, there had been a number of approvals, uh, a number of accelerated approvals, and I just was kind of scratching my head to say, I don't know how you can have more accelerated approvals in this area, (laughs) right? Because if you have all of these agents, how can you still have an unmet need? But the reality is in myeloma, unfortunately, as is the case for a lot of other cancers, there is still an unmet need. And so new agents come along that can address those patients who have not yet gotten a cure, basically. So that's one of the goals that a lot of nonprofits can have is to continue to have agents moving through a pipeline so there are new drugs available for folks whose disease progresses uh, on the latest and greatest therapy. They move on to the next latest and greatest one. It's certainly one of the biggest challenges in cancer While we continue to see the industry and the whole healthcare ecosystem make progress, there is yet to be that silver bullet that effectively treats every single person with a specific cancer. It's ultimately such a heterogeneous disease. Absolutely. So looking back, was there something specific about those projects that did not succeed that now having 2020 hindsight vision that you could put your finger on why those didn't succeed? I think some of them... Some of them I knew were we knew were risky at the time, but one of I always take a balanced portfolio approach to these kinds of investments, for better or worse. I'm pretty sure some of these were kind of a winger, but you don't always know that. Certainly, as any one individual or even as part of a team, you don't know that this particular target that you don't think that highly of you know, is it really going to work or not? So it's worth taking risks on some things. That's one. I think the other thing that um, is challenging in this kind of 
world where you're investing in a molecule that could have uses in other diseases is that it gets complicated. It gets complicated because if you're competing, for example, between clinical trials in myeloma versus clinical trials in colon cancer, of course the franchise is going to want to prioritize colon cancer. Mm -hmm. It's a larger market. There's a greater need. It's easier to get the trials done. And so you might think that your favorite drug is going to, that particular drug is also going to be great for myeloma. It's hard to get the attention of a, an organization to stay focused on that. Likewise, and I didn't, I just didn't anticipate this in this one case. There's an agent that we funded, um, the company is Acceleron Pharma, and the agent was ACE011. And it is a bone anabolic, and there's, there's genetic experiments that shows that it, it does this, it grows bone. And osteolytic disease is a big problem in myeloma patients. So mm -hmm. the myeloma seeds the bone, the bone degrades, people are in a lot of pain, you have fractures, you have skulls that look like Swiss cheese. So in principle, if you could grow bone or even oppose some of that bone degradation, you might be able to really help people. But it turns out that that agent also had a... Um, a red blood cell promoting effect. I don't actually, mm -hmm. I can't remember what the right words are to describe that, but that's a far bigger market than this. And the clinical studies are far less complicated than studying a bone anabolic. So I guess I maybe knowing what I know now, I might've predicted that that was, that that utility, the agent was going to win. I still think the bone growth activity is fetching, but that's not what it's. Uh, it went on to be studied for. I think I vaguely recall that drug. It was being tested for anemia, right? Yeah. Different, different forms of anemia and, and different disease settings, which of course is a much bigger patient population. Mm -hmm. You said that during your time there was about twelve total venture philanthropic investments made. Do you remember or recall what percent actually went on to be successful and end up in a drug approval? It just went back to tally, actually. I think it's really, I mean, unless I've missed one, I think it's really just that one from Cario Farm. So, you know, that's kind of the industry standard. I was just right? going to say, I think it's about <laughs> right, 10, what, or 10, 10, out of, 10 out of 100, 10%. Exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, there were ones that had, I mean, I you can't really judge success, certainly at the get-go, obviously. And there were ones that went on to be acquired by another organization or went on to the next stage of clinical testing. And so if I, if I were in the business of objectively looking at the success of this program, I would count some of those successes as, uh, of course, important because you know, failure comes for a variety of reasons, some of which are business decisions. But yeah, I, I, think, um, I think overall we did at least as well as the industry and, you know, maybe smarter people could have made better decisions, but I'm, I'm very proud of the program. Yeah, I certainly would be very proud. And sure, we can't forget the learnings from failures as well. And when something doesn't work, you learn something new about the biology of the disease as well. And those are sometimes equally as important, even if they don't end up in a drug approval. Right. So you ended up staying at the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation for how many years was it again, Louise? It was uh, somewhere just over five. Okay. And then you decided, okay, I'm going to retire. But as I understand from our last conversation, after only a few months, you realized, oh, I really do miss the work. And you ended up transitioning to the Melanoma Research Alliance as the chief scientific officer. What drew you to that position? And what did you miss? Right. So it was actually my first pre-retirement. Um, so, and I, I'd have had several and, and the reason I left the MMRF really was, I just felt that I wasn't giving it my all and that that's not fair to the team. It's not fair to the, it's not fair to the patients. And that, you know, that told me that I, it was time for me to move on. And it was a pretty intense place. We got a lot done but I needed a break. So I was not 100% convinced I was retiring, but when I started, I was convinced that I was done being a chief science officer at a research nonprofit. 
after about three months, I discovered that I just plain missed the work. I missed being in touch with the science. I missed being in touch with scientists. Um, I missed the challenges. And I had been contacted by the Melanoma Research Alliance to become CSO. And it was not that long after I left the MMRF. But, and I was like, I just left that job. Why would I take another one of those jobs? <laughs> and, and But I, I called them back um, and said I had changed my mind. They were a little skeptical. But we, you know, we kept the conversation going and ultimately I met with, you know, I met with the CEO at the time who was Wendy Selig and the, the co-founder, Deborah Black, and, and they tried to impart to me how much of a change was about to sweep the melanoma field, but I didn't understand it because I didn't really know what was going on with immunotherapy and and, and they were right. Uh, change was coming to melanoma treatment, and it was going to be enormous. And uh, But I would say between their in interest and their enthusiasm, the opportunities to um, take up work that I found interesting and rewarding, it you know, I decided to do that um, with MRA. So maybe take some time to share a little bit about what some of those changes were. I mean, certainly melanoma was the fertile ground for, or what really kicked off immuno-oncology, correct? Correct, yeah. So, you know, I, I was talking to them uh, in early 2013, and um, what had happened in the melanoma field was in 2011, the first immunotherapy approval happened, and that was for ipilimumab. Now, if you look at the, the clinical data for ipilimumab, um, trade name is Yervoy, there are 20% long-term survivors of patients, metastatic melanoma patients treated with IPI. And that's great because that was a huge improvement over anything that existed before. But people who were knowledgeable in the field knew that the next generation of these immuno-oncology drugs were coming along and that they looked even more promising. So there was that taking place. What had also happened was in um, 2011, again, the first small molecule inhibitor of the oncogene BRAF was approved, and that was vemurafenib. And that had an amazing impact on people who, on the half of melanoma patients who have a, an activating mutation in BRAF, their disease practically melts away, but it almost always comes back. And so un, you know, it seemed to me, just on the face of it, understanding what those mechanisms of resistance were and seeing whether they were able to be modulated offered the opportunity for the introduction of the next generation of agents. So that was kind of the scientific state of affairs. And what came on the heels of, you know, heels of that were the approval of the first PD-1 antibody in the U.S., and that was Keytruda. And I believe that was in 2013, but I may have my dates wrong. And then nivolumab right on its heels. Nevo was actually approved in Japan uh, before it was approved in the U.S. Uh, that's Updevo. But then combinations, new kinase inhibitors, new immunotherapy options, combinations of these things within class and potentially across class. It was amazing. And if one looks at the recently updated data, that was presented at ASCO uh, out to many months. I think I think it were 80 months, if not more, for the combination of PD-1 and IPI, that is uh, Opdivo and Yervoy in patients. Over half of those patients are still alive. And that's metastatic um, and disease. That's medis it's advanced metastatic melanoma. In fact, patients who are in that same study, patients who received Opdivo alone, a smaller number of them, I would say just under 50%, are also still alive. But, you know, that's a big difference. And the study's not really powered, has never been powered to differentiate the two. Nonetheless, half of metastatic melanoma patients alive at, you know, five plus years, this is good. It was truly groundbreaking. Yeah. And so what we see in oncology is you know, of course, a renaissance of immune agents of all kinds. 
these checkpoint blockers are one thing, next generation of checkpoint blockers, but also cell-based therapies, things like viral therapies. I mean, it's really, it's a very exciting time. And I would be remiss if I didn't also mention there was already ongoing work to bring forward an mRNA vaccine from BioNTech. Oh, you're um, kidding. Oh, no. With with Uber Sahin, I actually invited Uber Sahin to speak at a Melanoma Research Alliance scientific retreat, and he kindly came and spoke. That work was already going on well before we even knew the words COVID could come together. Right. So <laughs> it's an exciting time. And for me, this touches on the excitement around treating a disease like sarcoidosis, which is an immune disease. It's a different one where you want to inactivate the immune system, but all of these lessons learned about the immune system from all of these different places, I am hopeful will coalesce around improvements in a lot of disease areas. Absolutely. It's definitely the age of immunotherapies. It's really exciting. I want to shift a little bit and go back to venture philanthropy. Now, you had, as you just described, this explosion of new immunotherapies. So clearly there was a lot of industry involvement in this new era, as we just described. How come the MRA didn't have a venture philanthropy program set up? I would think there that there would be just so much to do with so many opportunities. What factors played into that decision making? Well, there were, I mean, there are a couple of things, and, and some of it is, I would say, strong and accurate leadership from our scientific advisory board who knew, because of their positions as advisors to different companies, about the breadth of the work that was going on in companies. And, you know, when we would engage with them, with engage with these advisors, around the idea of shouldn't we be doing some of this to move the field forward, we got a lot of a lot of pushback saying, we just don't see how you're going to be able to do anything that the companies already aren't. Interesting. So very and, different from MMRF. Yeah. So you have to, I mean, you have to know your environment, right? And that's true of everything. We didn't do a big venture philanthropy thing at the time. We also did dabble in some programs to encourage the um, academic interactions with industry. We had these uh, a, a flavor of award called the Academic Industry Partnership, where MRA would fund the academic investigator with cash, and a, a corporate partner would co-submit, basically, with that academic investigator, and they would match our contribution with either in-kind or cash support for the research. But those are very challenging, I would say, to manage. And then quantifying that in-kind support was always a little bit, it was a little bit dicey. Mm-hmm. So those were not, those are not the best. I would say that was not a great approach, at least as we had it uh, styled. That said, I think, you know, I mentioned at the beginning within the definition of venture philanthropy, the idea of investing in companies rather than projects specifically um, has um, expanded. And I'm, I think my colleagues at MRA are taking um, on some, some looks at how to do that kind of thing, which other nonprofits certainly have done too, to in, invest more broadly in companies Um, and to maintain a portfolio of venture philanthropy programs that way. Interesting. So during that time that you were CSO at MRA, when you look back at your research funding decisions, were you primarily funding research that was still more discovery-oriented, where you were looking for the next agent or the next treatment approach that would fill gaps on top of immunotherapy? How did you approach the research funding strategy? Some of it was what you described really, you know, discovery oriented, but much of it was more fundamental biology oriented. The backbone of the MRA grant making program was around how we make our investments. Do we fund, are we funding team science? Are we funding established investigators? We always funded early career investigators, which we call young investigators, even though most of them are right around 40. Um, I guess that's young. Um, and those were the, 
I would say the kind of the three main types of awards we funded. And then we would occasionally fund pilot awards. One of the things that we uh, undertook at MRA with a lot of push from the board to do so, and thank you to them for that, we undertook a program to evaluate what came out of all of these investments. What did we get for our money? And that's very difficult to do in the nonprofit world. People always count publications. Oh, well, that's, you know, that's good, but it's a challenge to quantify in a way that satisfies nonprofit directors. So we would count things like, were they able to use the findings from this study that we supported to go on to get additional funding? So you can quantify mm -hmm. that. Did patents come out of that? If the patents came out, were they licensed? Uh, what did they make? So you can quantify that kind of thing. But there were also the, what I'll say are big qualitatives, things that often go along the lines of this program that was funded by MRA was the first to describe the importance of PD-1 as a target for immunotherapy. So that's a pretty big one. Was that, that actually, that's a true, that's actually happened? That's true. Wow. Yeah. So, and I may have misstated exactly how we used to phrase it, but I mean, it is true that um, because of MRA's funding, it was clear that melanoma was the standout beneficiary, if you will, of PD-1-based therapy. So, you know, when you can tell those people like that kind of thing, right? First, right. Best, First biggest, ever. Yes, of course. <laughs> you know, so the big qualitatives and the quantitatives made us convinced that, in fact, we had made good investments over time and that some some things like our pilot award programs, specifically where you're, we funded people for projects that had little to no preliminary data, mm -hmm. they could take our modest investment and then go on and get an R01. Well, that's a huge leverage of the money that we put in. Yep. And a handful of those basically, you know, kind of, quote, paid for everything you put into that program and moved careers forward in meaningful ways. So I, I think the, the way we sliced and diced the analysis of the return on investment was really very uh, helpful in justifying to future donors that this is a good organization to invest in. Absolutely. Did any of those analyses actually inform new approaches or new strategies? It did. So for example, that kind of analysis at least at the time, and you know, in the course of the nonprofit business, never say never, because things can change. But <laughs> at least at the time convinced us that we really were not getting good bang for our buck out of these academic industry partnerships. Got it. So that was, that one just didn't, uh, was one that we kind of took off of the table because of that. It did convince us that we should try to do those pilot programs because of their return on investment. One of the other lessons partly from MRA, but partly also from my prior experience, is that when you do fund teams, you should not fund artificial teams. You what do you mean by that? Sometimes people think that team science is like a basketball dream team, which was, of course, the primordial dream team in the Olympics, where they mm -hmm. took all of these stars and they put them on the court at the same time and wonderful things happen. Well, with team science, there has to be some chemistry, and it has to be a real team. You can't just put three great thinkers together on a grant application and expect that you're going to have team-quality, amazing results come out the other end. It might happen, but you can't expect it. And so we established the concept of teaminess and during the grant review, really tried to get at the idea of, is this really a team or is it just a bunch of people who wrote an application together? And trying to assess the teaminess was a, a measure of assessing whether that was going to be a good project or not. I can't even begin to imagine how you assess teaminess. Right? <laughs> it's pretty subjective, so exactly. but you know, the, review, the reviewers... I mean, they know everybody and they know the yeah. personalities. Yeah. 
And so, you know, you would occasionally get people to say, I can assure you <laughs> that this is this is Dr. Smith's application, which has Dr. Brown's name on it as well. <laughs> so, Louise, if I may, I'd like to talk a little bit about leadership. You mentioned it at the outset that you were shaped by some really great leaders while you were in industry. And now that you've gone through your career and now you're very much a successful leader yourself and still leading the foundation for Sarkadosa's research, what do you think are some of the most important attributes of a successful leader? This is a, I, I've given this a lot of thought. It's hard to put into words. I would say as a leader, you need to have a clear vision of what you want the world to be, approximately how you might be able to get there. And hopefully that that vision is not fully self-serving. It's okay if it's self-serving, right? Enlightened self-interest is a great motivator. But to do things for a greater good is an important component of leadership, in my opinion. When I think about the people who invested in me early in my my uh, industry career, um, Dr. Joe Catino and Dr. Paul Kirschmeyer, I have no idea why Joe took me under his wing. I honestly <laughs> have no idea. But he really made me into the leader I am today. So I think he did that because he thought it was the right thing to do. And I try to bring that approach to um, my leadership style, that this is the right thing to do, so we're going to do it. And um, to try to serve the community, our country, the world, by doing that, to do something you love is important. Uh, work hard at it and play hard too. And yeah, make friends. I think those are all of my key leadership lessons rolled into one. It's the first time in all the interviews I've been doing where I've heard someone say a leader has to have vision that is clear from the outset. I think many of us sort of say, oh yeah, that's, that's of course part of leadership, but it's not really honed in on. But you're the first to really say that this is so core and central, the vision. A leader, I completely agree, has to keep coming back to the vision to motivate and inspire their team. Thank you for that insight. Well, Louise, I want to close the podcast with one final question. And that is, if you could go back in time, what piece of advice would you give your younger self who is starting out in her career? That's a great question. I think the one thing I wish I had done more is network more. I didn't really know what that was for a very long time, but it is so incredibly powerful and I, it probably comes naturally to a lot of other people. It doesn't come naturally to me. Um, but it is, you know, it's, it's just something that you can rely on professionally and personally to make yourself a better person and to make the world a better place. 100% agree. Networking. Yep. Not something that comes naturally to me either, but I can agree that that is truly critical. Well, Louise, I can't thank you enough for taking the time with me today. Your stories and your advice are incredibly valuable to me and I'm sure the listeners out there. I wish you and the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research much success. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure talking to you, Katrine. Likewise. Take care and be well, Louise. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.